Welcome to Calvary. We are continuing our series tonight, um, Sex and Gender in the Image of God. Uh, we will be doing a Q&A following the service. You'll see there's a phone number right there. You can text in your questions. You can text them right now, um, or you can text them when they come to you. Uh, that's probably a better idea. Uh, and you can also uh, re- wait until after the service. There will be time to text them in as well. Tonight of all nights, I think the Q&A is especially important because we are going to... Um, We are going to start what we inevitably cannot finish. It's just the nature of how time works and the nature of how I respect people when I have their full attention and it's awkward when you stand up and leave if I'm still talking. Uh, So we really only have the next little less than an hour together, Um, but my, my goals are relatively humble and I'll just lay them out for you up front. First and foremost, it's to connect the reality of gender of male and female to this idea of the image of God. And in doing so, I want to show both that that means that gender as a concept is significant uh, and that it, it uh, is something um, that the Bible not only gives directions to, um, but actually explains is an aspect of how we are designed as human beings and being part of God's creation, it is good. Now to do that, like I said, we're going to go a little bit further than that We're going to lay the foundation, and I'm going to start walking down the road of where that foundation leads, but we are not going to get there. In fact, let me say this up front. Recently, I heard a story about a man uh, who was visiting Ireland, and while he was passing through the small town of Cork, he pulled aside a resident of Cork and said, excuse me, I'd like to go to Dublin. Can you tell me how to get there from here? And he said, oh, if I were going to Dublin, I wouldn't start here. On this particular topic, in this particular time, that's a sentiment I understand. I feel like these things are especially difficult for us to approach. In fact, I'll give you a, a primary reason why. One of the challenges of preaching is that it's not merely explaining what the Bible says, it's also explaining what the Bible says to whoever's listening. And on this particular topic, um, the background experience, what you've encountered in your life, your own life story, Uh, the broad opinions, all of the heat and frustration that comes with these things, the difficulties, and I'll even add the poor handling of these things. I think all of us would agree tonight, Christian or non, whether you walk out the door nodding with me or disagreeing, all of you would agree tonight that not all opinions on gender are equal. We may disagree on which ones are better and which ones are worse, but recognize that you're all sitting here with a huge context that I probably don't know. And so, so um, with that in mind, I'm going to try and respond to a few of those things, but my goals, like I said tonight, are, um, are a bit more simple. It's just to ask the question is, uh, simply put, um, does the Bible have anything to say about gender? And if so, where do we begin? Okay. Now, the second thing I want to remind you of as we get started is that we've been doing this entire series and keeping in mind four aspects of the story of Christianity, four pieces of the um, history of redemption, if you will, the story that the Bible tells. And those four aspects are really important because without one of them or without all of them, not only will you misunderstand what the Bible is saying, but you'll also misunderstand what I'm saying tonight. And so let me refresh your minds if you've been with us or point those out um, if you're new with us tonight. Simply put, they are um, creation, 
which means the Bible opens with God creating a world and declaring that it is good. The fall, which is this recognition that the world we live in doesn't live up to that good design, that good intention, because something's gone wrong. Because of the sin in the garden, the lives that we live don't always line up to the design in our bodies, in our environment, even in our own will. We now are inherently resistant to the design. Um, wanting not just to rejoice in the creation of a good God, but be our own God and design our own world. The fall involves all of those components. Redemption means that the story the Bible tells, God actually did something about that problem in sending Jesus Christ. And so that brings with it uh, a new identity and a new call to a new way of living in that identity. But consummation, the final one, reminds us that that work is not yet finished that we are redeemed in a fallen world, okay? That if you're a Christian, there are things that that instantly and automatically changes, like your destiny. And there are other things that you are wrestling through. As Francis Schaeffer loved to put it, because Jesus has come, we should expect significant change and healing. Because Jesus hasn't come again, we shouldn't expect total change and healing, okay? And so we are all works in progress, in Jesus Christ. And consummation also points out um, that there's a good deal of hope involved in the paradigm. That where you are and what you experience and what you taste and where life falls short is not the whole story. Okay? That's especially significant tonight because by nature of this, we're going to focus almost entirely on creation. And so most of you are going to sit in the audience and say, that's all well and good, but what does that have to do with my life as I actually experience it? And those are wonderful questions. They're especially important. We can deal with some of them during the Q&A, but I just want to recognize up front that before we can talk about what's gone wrong or how, uh, how to live out these things, there's a huge question, which is just, what is gender and what is it for? That's where we have to begin. Before we can talk about anything else on how we define gender, um, on how we live out gender, on, on what it looks like on places where these things are incongruent with our own life, we have to start there, okay? So to do that, I'd like to begin in the book of Genesis at the very beginning in chapter one. So if you have a Bible, please just open it up to the first chapter, and if you didn't bring a Bible tonight, stuck right in the back of a pew in front of you, you'll find one, and I would encourage you to open it up and read along. I'd like to read an opening passage and pray, and it's found, as I said, in the first chapter. Genesis chapter 1 records a six-day period where God creates the heavens and the earth. Um, in doing so, there's a pattern, there's a structure, we'll refer to this a little bit later, but it culminates the crowning achievement of God's creation. The focal point of the narrative is the part we're going to read Today, the part we're going to start with, it has to do with humankind, it has to do with us as people. And so what I'd like to do is read all the way from verse 26 through 28 together and then we'll pray, but I want to just add one other thing. As I do this, if you picked up from the pews an ESV Bible or if you brought one with you tonight, um, I'm also reading out of the ESV, I'm going to edit a little bit. There are places where the grammar is ambiguous 
And the ESV has chosen to go in one way, which I find to be confusing. And so I'm going to edit on the way. I just want you to know up front uh, that I'm doing that. And it will probably be relatively clear why after we do so. So please read with me, starting in verse 26 of Genesis 1. Then God said, let us make humankind in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created humankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Let's pray. God, I know that we all come from different places on these issues, with different backgrounds. Uh, There are some of us who feel like these things are worth fighting for because they're so important to us, and there's others of us who are willing just to say that this is irrelevant and unimportant. We're burned out um, by talking about it. Uh, and and we'd like to just see it removed from the conversation entirely. Um, But as we look tonight at your word, I pray that you would show us how connected these realities are to your purpose for humankind uh, and how it is that they show and reveal and demonstrate who you are. We pray this in your name. Amen. Now, I might as well explain myself why I edited the grammar there. It's because, like in English at one time, the word for humankind and the word for sometimes we even call it mankind is synonymous. But when we read this, if we read God made man or God made men, there's a tendency for us to be reductionistic and not realize that this word uh, includes both genders, okay? Um, In the same way, the pronouns uh, are ambiguous in the Hebrew. And so whether it's referring to man, singular being made in the image of God, or them, male and female, is being added by the translators. And I would say it makes more sense of the passage to maintain that plurality throughout. Um, But either way, uh, notice what we see here. Um, We see effectively the creation of both Uh, of humankind specifically in the image of God, and then it adds both male and female. Now, the first thing we need to understand tonight is that there has been a transition in the pattern of chapter 1. Chapter 1, all six days roll out relatively the same way. The format is exactly the same. And God said, let there be light, and there was light, and it was good. That's the first day. And then God said, let this happen, and this happened, and it was good. And that pattern falls over and over again. So when we get to verse 26, and it says, then God said, we hit something that's new, something that's unique, something that's different than everything else we've read so far. Everything else we read, there is this verbal statement, be And there was. And in here, we get an internal conversation first. Notice that again in verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image. Okay? He doesn't speak into the void, into the nothingness, and create, uh, you know, by divine fiat. He says something about what he's about to do. He provides commentary on this aspect. In fact, he has a conversation. A conversation in the plural. Let us make man. 
and the word there for man is the generic one for humans, humankind in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over the livestock and over all the earth. So we see two things here that are important. First off, we see why this is different. Okay? It's different because everything else that was created is to be under the dominion of what is now being created. Right? And so the world is made, and in a sense, it's made for humankind. Okay? And then second, it says that, uh, that unlike the rest, where God says, let there be light, and there was light, he says, let us make humans in our image. And so we get this concept of the image of God right here, and that's unique. Okay? That's something that's stated here, and specifically it says, in our image and after our likeness. Now, effectively, at bare minimum, what this concept means, and first off, here's how it was used in the ancient world, okay? If you talked about something being made in your image and tied it to the concept of dominion like we see here, it effectively was pointing to one of two things. Either kings in the image of God, in other words, their God's divine vice regent on earth, but it was only applied to royalty, or of statues of those kings marking out the deeper regions of their leadership. So how do you know who rules over your life? Because of the image, the statue that's in your town. I actually think we can probably relate to this today because what happens when there's a revolution in a a dictatorial country? We pull down the statues, right? Why is that significant? No longer in charge, okay? So that's what it means in the original day. But when it says an image and likeness, the impression we should get here is that there's some way uniquely beyond animals, beyond plant life, beyond the earth itself, there's some way uniquely that human beings are like God and are called to represent him, okay? In fact, the dominion here is not God making a world and going, I give it as a gift, do with it what you please, but I'm making you to rule on my behalf, as my representatives, okay? That's the significance of what's going on here. Now, that being said, we see here that when God creates humans in his own image, not only does he make them in the plural, but he makes them in two distinct ways, as male and female, okay? Now, the reason that that's significant is probably best understood in the plural we find in the statement that God makes to himself. What does it mean here when God suddenly, the only uh, character in the story so far, says, let us, okay? Let us make man in our image. Now, the Bible maintains that something that's unique about who God is in comparison to other religions is that God is three in one, that God is community, Now, this is not an optional doctrine for Christians when we talk about the Trinity, and I'll explain why. The one statement everybody knows about who God is according to Christianity, in fact, one that's often adopted broader than the confines of the church, is that God is love. But have you ever thought about what that means? What does it mean to say that God in his very nature is loving? When we have the us here, when we consider the Trinity, we can leave that as part of God's nature because before there was us, people for God to love, God was still love. God didn't go, I'm lonely, I'm the only one in this universe, I'll make myself some friends. The us here reminds us that God has always been love. 
in loving relationship as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, that's a mystifying idea. But I would encourage you, if you want to see how it plays out in practice, read the Gospel of John. Look at the way Jesus talks about his relationship with the Father and with the Holy Spirit. And what you see is this perpetual reality that God is love. So the significance we see here in God not just making a person, but people. And I would argue tonight, not just making a person, but people in two different ways, as male and female, is essential to reflect the us. God is social, and so his image needs to be social. God is community, and so his image is only fully expressed, not by individuals, but specifically individuals in relationship. Okay? And so the significance here of of this is that um, the primary thing it means to be in God's likeness and represent him is inherently relational. It's not just God has a, uh, I was going to say God has a brain, that's misleading. It's not just God thinks so we think. It's not just God has a will so we have a will. When he says let us make man in our image, the, the only thing we see in the text that explains what we are, what it is that makes us like God is that we are designed for relationship. First and foremost with him but also with one another, and that something about those one another relationships actually shows us who God is. And that's what we've seen extensively in this series so far in talking about sexuality, is that because of the reality of male and female, there is also this reality of sexuality, and that sex and the way that it's designed says something about who God is. Now, if you're joining us for the first time tonight, I don't have time to review that fully. The audio's online. I'd encourage you to give it a listen. Now, is there significance here that it's, that it's male and female? Is this just an aside? Is that just a biological reality? Is this merely saying that both men and women fully represent the image of God? If it weren't for that relational emphasis that we've seen consistently and we'll see tonight then I would say, yeah, sure, maybe. Maybe this is just a profound statement of equality. And it already has that characteristic. As I mentioned, image of God in the ancient Near East was something only applied to royalty. And what do we see here? Humankind is royalty, created for dominion, collectively. Okay? But when it adds here male and female, it says more than that. In fact, this seems to be how Jesus understands this. Because in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 19, when he's answering a question about divorce, he does what Jesus does when he talks about sex, when he talks about gender. He goes to Genesis, just like Paul does, just like Malachi does, okay? That's been an emphasis we've seen in this passage. But when he does, he doesn't go to chapter 2, and the two, the man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then Jesus adds, what God has joined together, let no man tear apart. But he begins by saying, the person who said that in chapter 2 is he who created them, male and female. He anchors the beginning of his understanding here in Genesis 1.27. He connects those two ideas. He makes them significant. Okay? Now, when we look at gender in the image of God, we need to have a very quick conversation. It's a little bit heady, but I think it's worthwhile. What we are not saying today is that there is male and female because God is male or female or because God is male and female, okay? 
And this is actually really significant because once again, in the ancient Near East context, look at the religions of Babylon, of Mesopotamia, of Egypt, of Canaan, the surrounding area that this book was written in the context of, the religions that made up the cultural milieu of Judaism in its early days. And you will find consistently both that the gods and goddesses of their pantheon are gendered and have genitalia and also that their sexual acts are an aspect of how the world came into being. Okay. So for example, you may be familiar with later on in the story Baal and Ashtoreth. Baal is a male god and Ashtoreth is his consort. And the way that religion worked was that by doing sexual acts on earth and other pieces of worship, you stimulated them, the gods, into having sex, and that's what made the ground fertile and gave you a good crop. Okay. When you remember that context and you read the Old Testament, you find something tremendously different. You find a God who is not sexual or sexually involved. You find a God who has just made the earth fertile and is to be trusted for its yield and not manipulated into fertilizing the world in some sort of sexual aspect, you find a God who is not male with male genitalia or not some sort of androgyny or hermaphrodite that is both male and female. Now, if any of you are decent readers, you're going, hey, wait a minute. The Bible clearly refers to God constantly as a he. And that's absolutely right. Grammatically, in the verbs and in the adverbs, consistently in the pronouns, God is referred to as he. Okay. Now, I want to add a few more pieces of data before we answer what exactly that points to. Okay. On top of that, we find both masculine and feminine imagery for who God is. We'll look at some of that directly tonight. Okay. I'll give you probably the clearest one. Jesus' favorite title for God is what? Father. That is masculine imagery, is it not? We find that about a dozen times in the Old Testament as well, where God is referred to as either a father of Israel or a father of King David and the kings that would come from David. Okay? We also find feminine imagery for God, that God is motherly. But we do need to make a distinction here, and it's an important one. Okay? Because if we just took that, then we would say, well, God is both masculine and feminine. And depending on what you mean, that might be absolutely right. But here's another grammatical difference between the two. The Bible uses masculine imagery metaphorically of God, but with feminine imagery, it's always a simile. Can you remember the distinction from your seventh grade grammar class? Okay. Metaphor is God is a father. Simile is God is like a mother. The Bible is tremendously consistent on this. Okay. So what's the significance of all these things? If God is not envisioned as being a sexed being with genitalia, if this is not an aspect of God's biology, then why do we see these two things? One, that he clearly defines himself as masculine, not as male, but as masculine, and that two, although he uses feminine imagery, he uses it differently. I'll add one more point that's helpful, okay? On top of those two things, recognize that whenever the Bible uses these uh, these images for God, they're always relational images. And that means that there's two parts in the image, okay? So if God is a father, we are his children. If God is a husband, we are his wife. If God is motherly, we are the recipients of that motherly love, okay? 
Now, here's another piece of how God reveals himself in the scriptures. God is motherly to our child, fatherly to our child, parent to our child, never the child. Okay? Not all of these relationships are flippable. God is always the husband, never the wife. Okay? This is just the data. I think we need to be aware of the data because it's really easy to jump too quick to conclusions. But here's the point that I'm trying to make. One, that God created gender to show with us, even if it's just merely metaphorically, who he really is. Two, that the primary way that gender works in the image of God, as we've already seen, is relational. Okay? And then three, that there's something significant about some relationships where God only plays one part. Okay? That it can't be reversed. Now, with that being said, I want to tie it to one last thing. What we see here is gender is directly tied to the image of God. In fact, let me point out one more point on this. What do we see in the first six days of creation as God creates the world? We see consistently and regularly a division into two things. So there is light and there is darkness. There is the heavens and there is the earth. There is the seas and there is land. Okay? That's what the whole story is, is this division, one after another. And so when we get to humankind, there is male and there is female. Okay? The pattern is sustained. And so we see this reality. We expect it to be different, that there's some sort of difference here, and we see that that difference is essentially played out relationally. Okay? This is where I think a lot of our conversations about gender go wrong. One, we try and ask what is masculine apart from what is feminine. Now, to be honest, sometimes we make the other mistake where we start with one and then we assume the other. And so we take man as a paradigm and say, we know what masculinity is. Either women are all these things too, so we respond to man as the plan, as the paradigm, or we say we know what masculinity is, so woman is the opposite of all these things. Okay? That's not what I mean when I say there's a relationship between these two things. I'm saying there's a correspondingness that male and female in the way that it plays out is interactive in nature. Okay? But also, the primary way this plays out is in actual human relationship. Okay? And this is where we can tie this to what we've been talking about in sexuality. We saw that the Bible maintains three aspects of our sexuality that you have to understand for a Christian sexual ethic. First, that we are embodied. That we are not just users of bodies or occupants of bodies, but that we are physical beings and that the salvation that the Bible envisions is a physical salvation. That just as Jesus was bodily resurrected, so also we, be, we will be. And so we can't separate ourselves from our body. And we also, sexually, can't use other people's body without responding to their full person. Okay? Embodiment in gender means male and female. There is a physicality to gender. The second thing we talked about is relational sexuality. That sex is divine to be the sign and the seal of the covenant relationship of marriage. How does that work out in gender? As husband and wife. And the last thing we saw with sexuality is what I called social sexuality, which is that designed in the sexual act and the sexual relationship itself is something that leads to more community. The possibility of children. 
okay? And when it says, as we saw in Genesis 2, it's not good for the man to be alone, that's not merely he's single, he needs a spouse, it's also he's alone, isolated, and he needs community, okay? And so how does that look in terms of gender? Mother and father, okay? Listen, we go wrong when we start in talking about gender with stereotypes, And we've all heard these. What's manly? To eat red meat, to enjoy hunting, to play sports, right? The list is different and diverse, and you could probably add to it. What is feminine, right? Particular aspects of dance. You know, we have all of these lists that we make for what's masculine and feminine that are inherently stereotypical. And the church in its history has not really gotten away from that. If you've ever heard a sermon on masculinity or femininity, if you've ever heard an exhortation to be a man or to be a woman, most of the time, they're going to turn to a character in scripture and uphold them as a picture of masculinity or femininity, okay? Now, that's problematic for two reasons, very quickly. One, because not all the examples in the Bible are good, okay? There's an occasion where Jacob's daughter Dinah is raped and her sons respond by tricking the entire city into getting circumcised and then murdering all of them and taking their wives. That is not a positive ethical example for Christians. Okay? The Bible is telling a real story with real and fallen people and so it records what actually happened. That's true of any paradigm you would point to as well. Second, anytime we do that, we're always wonderfully selective. We pick the ones that look like us or our aspirations in masculinity or femininity and we ignore the ones that don't fit the mold. Consider with me the concept of a man's man in King David. At first, even in our own cultural standards, it seems like a pretty good fit. But don't forget the fact that that David constantly and regularly wrote poetry, that he was so uh, demonstrative in his worship, he even embarrassed his wife and that he had such a close relationship with his friend Jonathan that it wasn't uncommon for them to embrace and weep, okay? Anytime we start with a stereotype, we're asking the wrong question, okay? And that's not what I want to do tonight. I don't want to talk about stereotypes. I want to talk about archetypes. I want to ask, is it possible that there's a design to gender? And if we're going to answer that question, then it's going to be in these categories, the ones that are pan-cultural and built into our sexuality, the ones that are an unavoidable aspect of who we are. In other words, what it means to be a man is often expressed in the fact that you are a son, a brother, and a father, and a husband. And what it means to be a woman is most often expressed in in almost everybody's lives in these same corresponding categories, as daughter, as sister, as wife, as mother. I'm not saying that gender only manifests in those ways, but those are the places the Bible emphasizes, focuses on, okay? And so so those are what we want to look at when we ask, what is male and what is female? This is especially important today when we talk about issues like um, transgender, gender dysphoria, when we talk about um, all of these issues, recognize that stereotypes exacerbate those issues. They set up a false identity of what it means to be male and female for somebody who already doesn't feel male or female, and it makes it feel even further, okay? 
the Bible doesn't talk about do these things to be manly. It says this is how God designed you as a man. Now that's going to lead to duty. It's going to lead to behavior. It's going to even lead to vocation, to calling. Okay? But it comes from who you are, not some sort of external standard that you have to strive to be. That's essential to understand tonight as well. But it's one thing to say, okay, gender is clearly important, significant, because it's tied to the image of God. It's one thing to say, okay, we see here at least the possibility of some form of difference here, and it's a whole other thing to explain that difference. Right? So can we do that? I'd like to do two things tonight to start to move in that direction. The first is, I just want to look at Adam and Eve. Like I said, archetypes. Before the fall, realities of who they are. And I want to ask the question, is there differences? Because let's be frank, there is a boatload of commonality. And that's too often ignored. Man and woman are both created in the image of God. And have the dignity of being image bearers. Men and women are both called to rule over the earth. Okay? So this idea of man as king and woman as servant is never going to fly. It's king and queen. That's what we're talking about. Okay? Now we're still going to have to deal with what it says in Ephesians 5 about marriage. And we will do that next week. Okay? But... Whatever that means when it says wives submit to your husbands, it doesn't be wives, it's not wives be servants to your husbands. It's not slaves, okay? Um, sorry, let me step off my soapbox and see if I can recover my thoughts. Um, second, both of them are given the call to be fruitful and multiply. Okay, so we got to be careful of over-distinguishing this and saying it's the man who rules and the woman who makes babies. Procreation takes two people. Okay, both of them are given this blessing. Both of them are held responsible for their choices and that leads to sin consequences in Genesis 3. Okay, but they are different. Now I want to deal with something right up front. If I say equal but different, there are those who already have kind of the cackles going up on their neck. You know what it reminds me of when I say it? It reminds me of separate but equal, right? You remember segregation? That was the call line. Totally equal. Races are equal, but we're going to keep them separate. And we were right to recognize the injustice in that. And so there's this sensitivity that goes, but don't differences imply inequality, Now, we're going to have to leave that on the table. I would say not necessarily, but I will tell you this, that ignoring differences does not promote justice. Okay? Not not maybe even for the reason you think. I'll, I'll give you an example. One thinker who hates this idea of different but equal and feels like the only way we can truly have an egalitarian society in terms of gender is to eradicate all differences or irrelevantize them. Is a, is a woman named Mollenkot. And Mollenkot says if we were really going to pursue an egalitarian society, then we would remove all gendered bathrooms entirely. Anyone could use the same restrooms. And all of the prisons, male prisons and women prisons, would be combined. Those are the examples she gives. Okay? Now, a speaker uh, or a, 
a person who responds to that, I think, very well is Megan DeFranza. If you've been with me, um, her book is great, and I've uh, quoted from it often. Um, and this is what she says. Mollen Cott should certainly be applauded for a genuine concern for equality, but her proposal overlooks the fact that justice often requires treating people differently rather than the same. Justice requires special attention to the vulnerable, and global statistics continue to show that women and children make up the largest percentage of the most vulnerable. When, quote, women age 15 through 44 are more likely to be maimed or die from male violence than from cancer, malaria, traffic accidents, and war combined, end quote, eliminating gender segregated bathrooms and prisons hardly sounds like the most compassionate response. It would seem to be working towards equal safety for all might require paying more attention to difference rather than eluding difference in the name of equality. And so if you feel that way, if you understand that, that's absolutely right. We can speak verbally equality and perpetuate injustice. But real differences have to be recognized to eradicate the dangers, the injustice that's perpetuated by ignoring those realities. Okay? Saying that children can fend for themselves is foolishness. And so we have to recognize these things, okay? Now, before we talk about the difference, let me add one other thing, okay? What, what we have seen in our world and what was referenced right there with Megan DeFrenza is the real reality of men taking advantage of and abusing and subjugating women, Okay? That is an undeniable reality. As she points out here, uh, the, the way that many women die more than cancer and malaria and traffic accidents and war combined is at the hand of violent men. In fact, I don't know if you saw the study a few months ago, but they showed that the majority of murders committed against women, well up in the 80%, are by intimate partners. Okay? That's a significant reality, and it's one the Bible recognizes. In Genesis chapter 3... Part of the curse of the woman is that her desire will be for her husband and he will rule over her. That is not, uh, not a positive statement. It's a consequence of the breakdown of their relationship. It's not the way it should be. It's the way it is because of sin. Okay? The Bible recognizes that reality. In fact, just read the rest of the book of Genesis and you will see this play out and perpetuate it. So we're now in a world that's trying to respond to that and go, how do we set things right? And the primary way we've done that is, uh, is uh, in doing one of three things, okay? Either one is to eradicate femininity and make all things masculine. And so just balance the scale by ignoring the differences and embracing masculinity, Another is by condemning masculinity and calling for femininity. And the last, like with Mollenkot, is a form of androgyny. And I'm not talking about how we dress here. I'm talking about a philosophical androgyny that says we really should just talk about people be people. We really should just reduce things down to human beings and ignore gender. We've already talked about that one. But the other one is worth pointing out. Okay. This is one of my primary concerns about some forms of feminism, is that what they're actually doing is, is deleting 
deleting femininity and embracing masculinity. Okay. Now, we haven't talked about what those things are yet, but it's worth pointing out. Uh, Vandana Shiva, who wrote an incredible book called Staying Alive, um, she, is, uh, she is a genius. I don't know if she's won the Nobel Peace Prize yet. I promise you she will. Okay, she was a nuclear physicist who forsook that to be an activist in her own country of India, specifically against Monsanto okay, and the way that they've come in and taken over India. She argues in this book that women's right issues, economics, and the environment are inherently always interwoven. It's a fascinating book, and she talks about how these things work out. In her book, she responds uh, extensively to gender. In fact, she says that capitalism and the Western scientific method are inherently masculine, that they are about exploitation and, and don't, don't understand things in a feminine world. She says that there's been two primary responses to this. She is not a Christian. She is Hindu. She, I don't know if she would still take the label of feminist, but her final advocation of this, I actually think don't escapes the concern that she has here. But in talking about these things, she points to two major voices in the feminist community and expresses her concerns. I just want to share them with you. She says, there's two gender-based responses to the process of domination and asymmetry. The first, represented by Simone de Beauvoir, okay, a famous feminist, uh, is based on the acceptance of feminine and masculine as biologically established and the status of women as second sex as similarly determined. Women's liberation is prescribed as the masculinization of the female. The emancipation of the second sex lies in its modeling itself on the first. Women's freedom consists in freedom from biology, from, quote, bondage to life's mysterious processes, quote, it consists of women battling against the elements and becoming masculine. The liberation that de Beauvoir conceives is a world in which the masculine is accepted as superior and women are free to assume the masculine values. Okay. Do you understand the concern she has there? We as Christians can't settle for that because it's a forsaking of male and female in the image of God. In the same way, there's another response. A response that says men are what's wrong with the world and so what we need is an eradication of masculine. Now, both of these categories always have very narrow definitions of masculine and feminine. I'm talking about the general concept and so she talks about this one as well. This is what she says. Herbert Marcuse sees liberation as feminization of the world. He says, quote, inasmuch as the male principle has been the ruling mental and physical force, a free society would be the definite negation of this principle. It would be a female society, okay? And so he basically says that we've tried this. It doesn't work. We need to throw it out entirely and all become more feminine. Neither of those approaches, nor ignoring the differences, can live up to what we've seen in Genesis. If male and female is created by God and pronounced good, if male and female are both essential for showing who God is, okay, then these things are both necessary in human community for flourishing as well as for really helping us see who God is, for being in his image bearers, representing him, with our lives, okay? So, now that we've laid out all that and we've said, okay, if there's differences, what are they? The place we should begin is right here in Genesis. Now, do we see differences for all of the commonalities between Adam and Eve? 
Okay? Let's just lay one on the table because I think it's helpful and it's semi-obvious. That's the biological. Adam and Eve being male and female are uniquely biologically designed so that they can procreate. We've talked about that already in past weeks. For the Christian, though, we can't stop there and say, but gender is merely biological. It's a, uh, it's a essential necessity for procreation, and that's all there is. And the reason is because that's not all creation is. Okay? Psalm 19 points out that the heavens declare the glory of God, which means the world as God designed it shows us who he is. Paul pushes it further in Romans chapter 1 when he says that the invisible attributes of God are clearly seen in the things that he made. Do you hear what he's saying there? He says you can't see God, but you can see who he is by what he made. And further than that, what have we seen? That this is tied directly to the image of God, that it's not just a biological necessity. We have lots of other ways of reproduction, right? It's, uh, as, as Andrew Wilson puts it, if God wanted to, it could be like flowers and a bee would just go by one female's ear and then by a man's ear and then they'd be pregnant, okay? Just with the exchange of pollen. That's not how it works for human beings, but is there more than biological? And the first thing we should say here is gender is clearly seen in the Bible as rooted in biology. We make a distinction verbally between sex and gender today. Sex is your biological sex. Gender is something more than that. And I'm okay with that distinction as long as you understand that the Bible connects those two ideas. Okay. But is the difference any more than that? I would say it's relatively easy to see in the story that it is. Some of these things we will talk about next week as we talk about husband and wife. Because Adam and Eve are not merely male and female, they're also husband and wife. Okay? But the ones I want to draw your attention to today have to do with the way the Bible talks about these two characters. And it actually begins before the creation of either of them. It begins before Genesis 1.26. Look with me at Genesis 1 verse 2. So we have this kind of introductory statement in verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then we're given the canvas. Then we're given the initial set. What was before God begins? And it says in verse 2, the earth was without form and void. The Hebrew there is tohu wabohu, without form and void. And it means two different things. It means it had no shape and it was empty. Okay. And so what, what do we see as the story goes on? We see that God forms a world and fills the world. In fact, this is another structural point of how the six days of creation are laid out. The first three days are focused on forming. Light and dark are separated. Sky and earth are separated. Land and sea are separated. The next three days are focused on filling those same places. So it goes back to light and dark and we get stars, sun, and moon. And then on the fourth day we get birds in the air and on the on the uh, fifth or I'm losing track here so fourth day on the fifth day we get birds and on the sixth day we get fish in the sea and land animals okay so the first thing God does is form the world deal with the without form issue and the second thing he does is fill the world now it seems to me that that pattern of forming and filling continues in the story of Adam and Eve and here's why I say that. For one, look at their names. What does Adam's name mean? It means earth. Okay. What does Eve's name mean? It means life. In fact, specifically, we're told with Adam that he's called earth because he was formed out of the ground. 
In fact, significantly, before Eve is there, he's given the call, the command to keep and tend the garden. But his name is Earth, so that makes sense. Eve's name is Life. Why? Because she's the mother of all living, because she's the life giver. Now, side note, the fulfilling of that name is more significant in the fa- than the fact that she has babies. Don't forget that in the middle of this curse in Genesis chapter 3 is a promise that will be fulfilled through the woman as life giver. Okay? In fact, when she has Cain, she says, I've received a man from the Lord, and then she has Abel, and Cain kills Abel, and Cain is set away, and now she has a problem. How is God going to send the snake killer if Abel is dead and Cain is sent away? And so when she has Seth, she says, God has given me a replacement. And it's not just, not just for Abel, not just for Cain, but for the promise, Okay? She's oriented towards life. In fact, the story rolls forward, and when we get to Jesus, where does he come from? From a woman, Mary. Okay? And so life giver is, is more than just having babies, but it's clearly connected to that idea. But it's not just that. Those aren't the only things I see in this story that seem to be different. Look at the curse itself. Here's something we need to understand about the curse as it's played out in Genesis 3. It is not the creation of new realities, it's the corruption of original realities. Okay? And so, for example, Adam is called to till the ground, to work the garden, but how is it going to work out according to the curse in verse 17 of chapter 3? And to Adam he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles shall bring forth for you and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground for out of it you were taken. Do you see how earthy the curse is for Adam? We see the same thing for Eve. Notice what it says in verse 16. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. The curse here is not that she will have babies, but now having babies is difficult. In fact, the same word for pain here in childbearing is the same one used for Adam in tilling the ground. She's going to labor, right? We still have that intonation in English. A woman goes into labor. So Adam labors in the ground because of the curse, where it used to just be productive and beautiful, now it's hard work, and now her productive and beautiful baby having is hard work, okay? And so we see it in the curse as well. I would say that forming and filling are unique aspects of masculinity and femininity as God has designed it. Now I wish I had time to unpack everything that that means, But I think what would be more helpful for us is to look specifically at how it plays out in mother and father. And I have a reason for doing this, okay? Um, One is because as we saw in our sermon on social sexuality, that reality is more than just having babies or having a family. It's about community more broadly. And so we don't just need a spouse or children. We need friends. We need neighbors. We need society as a whole. That's by design, But it's still tied to this idea of mother and father. In fact, we saw that the primary community that God has envisioned in the New Testament because of what Jesus has done is the church. And what terminology does it use for how the church should relate to one another? Family terminology. God encourages Timothy, he says, treat the older men in your church like fathers and the older women like mothers 
and the young women like sisters and the young men like brothers, okay? The connection is made there intentionally. In fact, think about it in terms of this, that fatherhood as a paradigm is the maturest expression of masculinity. Trace it through what we're talking about. You're born a boy, you become a man who becomes a husband, and that husband becomes a father. Do you see the trajectory in that? It's not that you only become a man if you become a father. Eve is called the mother of all living. She's given her name before she has any children. Okay? Um, it's not that you need those things. I'm just, I'm just showing, especially to the Jewish mind, that if we ask, what is a mature man? A father is going to be the first image that comes to mind. The second reason why I think this is a helpful place to go is because these are terms that the Old Testament uses, us, uses to tell us who God is. Fatherhood and motherhood say something about who God is. And so when we manifest fatherhood and motherhood in our lives, we image God. Okay? Now, there's another reason why I think that it's helpful to look at fathers and mothers as paradigms of masculinity and femininity, and that's because they're our first examples. At your youngest age, when you ask, what is a man or what is a woman, your primary example are your parents, okay? In fact, and I really struggled with this, the Bible doesn't ever give a list of masculinity or femininity. In fact, even when it talks about fatherhood and motherhood, very rarely does it explain what is required. It assumes we already know because we have fathers and mothers, okay? Even when it talks about God, most of the time it just says, like a father, and moves on. How? In what way? It just assumes we understand, okay? That's part of that stuck in cork and we need to get to Dublin reality. We live in a world that is broken and in a modern sense where there's much more distance in these realities, okay? And that makes it hard. But I do want to look at a few examples and I want to show you primarily that when God points to motherhood and fatherhood, and we'll also look in the New Testament, when Paul points to motherhood and fatherhood, it's in these two ideas of forming and filling. Okay. So, turn to Deuteronomy chapter 32. Deuteronomy 32 is significant for a couple of reasons. One, it's the first chapter where motherhood and fatherhood are used of God. Okay. Two, this is in the confirming of the covenant with Israel. This is the heartbeat of God's revelation to Israel as a covenant God, of the promises he has for him, okay? And so it's significant. This is not just God saying, this is who I am to Hagar or to a random character in scripture. This is built into the, the covenant, built into the, the great promise he makes for Israel. Genesis 32 is the climax of Moses' ministry. After this chapter, he's dead, Okay. All of those reasons, it points here, and we find both fatherly and motherly. Look at verse 6. Do you thus repay the Lord, you foolish and senseless people? Is he not your father who created you, who made you, and established you? Created, made, and established. All three of those words are used throughout the Old Testament, specifically talking about creation, tying it directly to the creation narrative. And so here, for the first time in Scripture, when God is identified as Father, he says, I'm the one, Israel, who created you, who made you, and established you. That word for establish, I think, is especially helpful. Okay? Because it has to do with forming, specifically the forming of children, formation, right? 
but it's this word that's used of creation, used of who God is, and tied here to fathers. Now look at motherhood in contrast in verse 18 of this chapter. Now, side note, if you're reading from the New King James, it's actually going to make this a fatherly metaphor, and that's super weird to me. I would love to talk to the New King James translators. The words here for for beget and bore, 99% of the time in the Bible are applied to women. And so when it says fathered here instead of beget, they're kind of jumping the gun a little bit, okay? Um, But when the two are used together, uh, for bore, that's something women do. Men don't bear children, okay? So this is a motherly image of God, and notice what it says in 18. You were unmindful of the rock that bore you and forgot the God who gave you birth, okay? And so it says what's motherly about God here, what his relationship is, who he is, has to do with birth and life-giving. We see the same pattern in Isaiah, okay? Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 64. Now, the chapters we're looking at in Isaiah, which range from 44 to the end of the book, are also significant in ways that other passages would not be, because we're talking in Isaiah 44 through 66 with the culmination of where God is going. Not just with Israel, but his entire plan. In the middle of these chapters are the chapters about the servant, Jesus, who would come in the fulfillment and the consequences of that. When John looks in the book of Revelations and says, behold, I saw the new heavens and the new earth, he gets that lingo from these chapters, okay? They're essential because they're the big prophetic crescendo of what God's plans are. And here again, he reveals himself in motherly and fatherly imagery. So look here in chapter 64, verse 8. But now, O Lord, you are our father, we are the clay, and you are our potter. We are the work of your hand. Now, clearly, that's not one image, but two, but they both seem to be tied to this idea of forming, of making. What is it that that defines God as father here? The fact that we are the work of your hand, okay? Now, turn with me a few chapters earlier to chapter 49, Forty-nine, verse 15. God once again uses feminine, specifically motherly imagery to talk about who he is in relationship with his children, Israel. He says this in verse 15. Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Now, you can't see this in the English, but there's a play on words there. The root word for compassion in the Hebrew is the word womb. Okay? And so compassion and womb go hand in hand, and by using it here, compassion for the son of her womb, there's a correspondedness to that relationship. One that we probably understand, right? The, the natural, inherent love we have for our children. Okay? But it's, it's seen here in feminine imagery. He continues, he says, Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I've engraved you on the palms of my hands and your walls, the walls of Jerusalem, are continually before me. He says, even when motherhood fails you in life, my compassion is unfailing. Okay. But we see again, when we ask the question, how is God motherly and how is he fatherly? It's tohu and bohu. It's in formation and in filling. It's in making and in life-giving. 
Now, I wish we had time to go, exactly what does that look like in life? And we just don't. If you were to turn to Thessalonians, we're not going to do so because I have something else I want to do instead. But if we were to turn to Thessalonians, we will see that Paul takes both of these images of mother and father and refers to himself and his relationship to the church in Thessaloniki. And so he says this. He says, but we were gentle with you like a mother with his child. And we loved you so much, we gave you not only the gospel, but our very lives. Okay, do you see the correlation there between motherliness and the second statement, we gave you our very lives? It's a nursing metaphor. We didn't just love you enough to tell you about Jesus, we shared with you our own lives, okay? And then later, just a few verses later, he says, but we were like a father among you, warning you and admonishing you and encouraging you to follow Jesus. It seems to me that those images follow the same shape. Now, let's point out the obvious there. Paul is a man and is totally comfortable using motherly imagery for himself. I don't want to say that's not significant. It clearly is. When I say that women are life givers and men are makers, I don't mean that women are not makers and men are not life givers. I'm talking about orientation. I'm talking about significant design. If you go and look at the studies that have been done over the last 50 years cross-culturally trying to decide what's different between men and women, there are lots of them. And they all consistently show differences of all sorts, physical differences. On average, in general, men are taller than women. Okay? Mental differences. The way that we think about things is different. Social differences. The way that we interact with other people are different. Now, there is something that we need to recognize there. When we talk about biology, gender or sex is dimorphic. Two forms, male and female. When we talk about these studies, they are dipolar. Right? So men aren't 6'2 and women are 5'3. Right? Men are a range of sizes and women are a range of sizes. And inevitably with these studies, here's what you'll see. You'll see that when you lay out these two categories, male and female, on whatever the topic it is, they'll lay out as bell graphs. You remember bell graphs? So there's a majority that's kind of near the middle, but there's extremes on both ends. Not only that, but the two bell graphs will overlap a little bit. Take height, for example. Although the average man is taller than the average woman, there are plenty of women who are taller than some men, right? No matter what we study, that's always true. It's always over two ranges, and the two ranges overlap. And so there's a tendency to go, doesn't that remove the significance of these things at all because it's just a range? Aren't we foolish to say that there's really a difference because the difference plays out both in male and female as much as it does between male and female? Yes and no. Think of those two bell graphs with me, slightly overlapping, and recognize these things, okay? That the lowest on one end will always be lower than the lowest on the other end. That the highest on one end will always be higher than the highest on the other end, and that the average will always be higher than the average on the other end, okay? And so, the shortest woman is shorter than the shortest man. The tallest man is taller than the tallest woman. The average man is taller than the average woman, Okay? So we can't just say that doesn't mean anything. It clearly means something, but these things play out over a range, and I think that's significant. Okay? Um, but we do find these differences, and what's interesting is in some of the more complex studies, ones that just don't go, let's talk about height or build, but the ones that go, how do we go about life? You will find patterns that correspond with what we see in the Bible. 
okay, that men tend to see their achievements in life by disconnectedness, by initiative, by moving out, by going, and women tend to see their significance in life and their maturing and their progress in connectedness and relating, okay? Remember the Industrial Revolution and how significant that is. When we suddenly separated men and women and left women at home and put men in factories, is it any surprise that the men in factories became alienated? That they became sterile environments that were lifeless and actually robbed men of their life? Why is it that Marx talks about the alienation of the worker being a byproduct of factories? It's because the making is there and the life is not. Okay? And the same with the home. Okay? Before this, when a man worked in the context of his family, he worked in the backyard, he sold to his neighbors who knew by name, we are in a completely different world today, right? You can make something and not know what happens after that. That's new. And you could, in the early days of industrialization, interact solely and entirely and completely with men in a community called the workforce that was masculine. Okay. Those are new phenomenons. If we're going to say the woman belongs in the home, we have to recognize, according to the Bible, so does the man. Okay? It's not that simple. There's significance in those things, but the way that human community works is it needs both of those parts. And I don't want to oversimplify it and, and um, lose your attention by illustrating. I don't want to say, for example, as much as I want to say, a man builds a house, but the family comes from the woman. But there is a significance in these things. We need both of them. When I say that women are life givers, I think this needs explanation too. This doesn't just mean women have the babies, even though that is a uniquely biological manifestation of these things. Like I said, the studies say that there's a way, a significant way, that women are more relationally oriented than men. Okay? Where nourishment is an aspect of what you desire to be for other people, how you operate in the world, okay? That there's something relational about, okay? Um, but that saying, saying that it's a whole lot more than this, and it has to be, because in the New Testament it says women, and as well as men, singleness is a good option. And so whatever it means to be a woman, if it's really tied to motherhood, is accomplished if you don't have any children. That's why Isaiah says, rejoice, you who are barren, because what God's going to do is going to lead to abundant fruitfulness more than people who have kids. Okay? But fruitfulness is still the feminine aspect. Okay? That's true. But I do want to add that the world we live in, the primary place that it despairs of the feminine is in despairing of the household, in despairing of motherhood in particular. What I'm saying is that the value system we use as a culture is a masculine value system. And so most of what I've seen is women who, who are pursuing masculine goals because those are the things that are applauded and celebrated. The Bible uses a different standard, one that's much broader, that defines sex success Excuse me, in broader terms. Okay? We have to recognize this. Listen to Chesterton. Chesterton was speaking in the days of first wave feminism quite a while ago, the suffrage movement in Europe. And this is what he says. He says, how can it be a large career to tell other people's children about the rule of three and a small career to tell one's own children about the universe? How can it be broad 
to be the same thing to everyone and narrow to be everything to someone. No, a woman's function is laborious, but because it is gigantic, not because it's minute, I will pity Mrs. Jones for the hugeness of her task. I will never pity her for her smallness. All I want you to recognize tonight is that we have super weird values. And so if you're a stay-at-home mom and you go to the doctor's office and you're filling out a form and it says occupation, they expect you to put none. That is not a biblical understanding. The Bible doesn't talk about occupation or careers or I'm a plumber or these things. It talks about vocation and it involves those things, but it involves a lot more. And it's not just Christians who get this. Vandana Shiva again, okay? There are a lot of things she and I would disagree on, but listen to how she points out what capitalism has done to the way we think about traditional women's roles. Reductionist economics assume that only paid labor produces value. On the one hand, this leads to ignoring man's dependence on the natural world. Okay, in other words, she says, that means that we rape the environment and we don't think of how much we owe to it. She continues, though, she says, while on the other, it provides the ideology of the gender division of labor such that women's work is producing sustenance, is treated as having no economic value, even while it produces the very basis of survival and well-being. Since poor third world women provide water, fodder, wood from the free commons that nature provides, collecting them is not considered a work in the reductionist economics. A gendered dichotomy is created between, quote, productive and, quote, non-productive work on the basis of money and price as the only measure of economics, worth, and wealth. I just want you to understand how short-sighted this is. Okay? We talk about why don't we let women into the army, and I think that's a good question. But a better question is, why don't we only draft women? And the reason is because if we send our women to war, our nation ends. Okay? Because we stop the possibility of children in a unique way. Right now, because of the way we think about economics, having children globally, I know we're blowing up in types of people, but having children globally is on the decline. And some nations are struggling economically now because they're not creating enough of a workforce. If there is to be a community, there needs to be a high value on the having of children. Okay? This is not the first time the world's been here. Rome had the same problem, and so they started incentivizing stable marriages and the having of children and uh, and actually taxing men who got divorced with no children and didn't remarry. Okay? These are not new things. But the point is this. What it means to be a woman as a life giver is so much more than these things, but we have to recognize how little we value motherhood. And what we see here is that these things point to the gospel. Okay? I'm not going to talk about how men do that because we talk about that all the time. But I want you to consider this, that when a woman has birth, she embodies the gospel in a profound way, that after that baby is born, she can say with full truth, this is my body that was broken for you. And then she can take that baby and bring it to her breast and say, take, eat. That's profound. The fact that we can gestate a human being on the nourishment 
your own body provides at a cost to your own body's health and then perpetuate that outside of the womb for a newborn until they're old enough to receive nourishment in any other form is not just biology. It's significant. It reflects the image of God in a profound way. And a lot of the, quote, masculinity that women are pursuing are just the same masculine idols that men have pursued. Thinking that we can find satisfaction and success and money and all of these things, and the world just says, yeah, those are mistakes that men make. I would say the same thing about abuse. C.S. Lewis says if the problem with the world is men, he's not so sure that women can fix it. And where we're failing in that sense is abuse, and it needs to be dealt with. And I've been amazed how much the Bible actually addresses these things. But it does it by calling men to be men and not eradicating the differences. So I know tonight that we've probably developed more questions than we have answers. I know that many of you are thinking, but I don't know how that works out in life. This is actually a relatively new revelation for me. Okay, I'm talking like it came together Saturday. After two years of work of trying to answer this question in a satisfactory way, this is as far as I've come. But I do think it's a much better foundation to build on than the ones that I grew up with. Um, And so we can talk about some of these things in the Q&A, but I want to finish with this. If what we're seeing is true, there are three significant things that I want from you as hearers of the words, as responders to God's word. One, don't give up on the reality of gender. What it means is clearly too important to just say it doesn't matter. Two, recognize recognize that the way that this is going to come about has to do with who you are and not some sort of outside understanding of who, who you have to be or how you measure up to some cultural thing, okay? Jesus, talking about the Sabbath, says, look, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The day off was a gift, and it was made a curse. We can do the same thing with gender. The realities of how God made men and women were made for the flourishing of humankind, not humankind so they could achieve gender, okay? And then third, third, Recognize that the way that God sees faithfulness, character, flourishing in general is inherently relational. And so the way that you answer this question is not going to be about your hobbies or, uh, or what jobs you can or cannot do. It's about the relationships and the responsibilities you owe to those around you. Okay. So with those things in mind, let's pray and then we'll transition to the Q&A. Father, I ask that you would lead us as a church, as individuals, as Christians at many churches. In fact, I ask that you'd lead us as, as, as human beings, as the society we call planet Earth, towards a way that celebrates both genders and gives full opportunity for the expression and the support and the encouragement of these things 
that we would avoid the pitfalls of hyper-masculinity or hyper-femininity and the pitfalls of unexpressed, emasculated or effeminated realities, Lord, but that we would really understand these things in a deeper way, explore them in life. I pray as well, Lord, for those who feel like the hand that they were dealt doesn't measure up, that the struggle that they have seems to be against the grain of these things, and they say, where is my place? How does this work out for me? Lord, I thank you that you meet us where we're at, and that you'll take us where we're going, and that where, how we get there is, is, is not by showing up in the right place, but just taking steps in the right direction. And so I pray, Lord, that you would reduce the weight we feel on our shoulders, that we are not who we should be, because that's a proclamation that we should all make broadly in every category and honestly. But day by day, as we look to Jesus, we are transformed into his image and we grow in your likeness and we become who we are destined to be in your timing, in your pace, by your faithfulness. I pray that we would feel that reality and experience it as well. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, the, the first three questions I'm going to answer tonight are actually from this morning service, which I've adapted a little bit, um, but, but let's just go ahead and take a look. You talked about androgyny as the erasure of the feminine, but I think there's an argument that androgyny is just a niche example of extending the concept of feminine as inclusive of things that have traditionally only been available to the masculine, like working outside the home, voting, and holding positions of leadership. How do we separate or hold in open hands gendered ideas that are truly socially constructed versus biblical? Okay, the, the first thing we have to do is we have to be open to... Uh, the fact that there's a better way to understand history. So, for example, take, take voting in the workforce. Recognize that both of those come from new institutions and a new way of thinking uh, about humanity. It was new, okay? Democracy as it played out, um, you know, in, in England and America was in a sense old in ideas, but it started from the same mistaken place. So Greek democracy that was so egalitarian was only for property owners who were not slaves, who were also men. It was an incredibly small group for a surprisingly large city, okay? And so the way that it identified identity, the way that policy was accomplished, the way that community was run, all those things were new. And so some of those characteristics of exclusion were also new, okay? We tend to assume that the world has gotten more and more egalitarian, but there has been ups and downs. There have been places where women actually had a tremendous amount of power, but that power was expressed in the home. And so when government was moved outside of those places, when cultural influence was moved outside of the community and broadened out to places, women were left on the outside, and that's absolutely right, okay? The way that we tend to have expressed those things, uh, and this is true of sexuality too, most of the ways we think about sex in the modern world that we react to are Victorian ideals, okay? That was a super weird age. It doesn't reflect the rest of Christian history on sexual thought. And so keeping women in-house and unseen and sex was something dirty, that was a relatively new concept. And the Puritans, who I know we give a hard time, actually had a tremendously high view of the pleasure of sex in these things. And it was tainted 
by this reality. So the, the only thing I want to say here is that we have to be careful with this thought on history um, of these things. The, the injustice in these things is absolutely right. When I'm talking about androgyny here, like I did a better job of explaining tonight, I'm talking about a philosophical androgyny that tries to erase the question of difference at all. Okay? It's not, are there areas where, where we are being sexist? I would say absolutely so. Let me just give you an illustration. I personally believe that the Bible is relatively clear that pastoral offices are restricted to men. And the reason is because men in the church are like the fathers, are like the husbands in a sense. And I also think that's the only way you can explain the commandments that are given in the New Testament about these things. One of the reasons why that's especially offensive to us, though, is because in the modern world, we generally think of pastors as decision makers. That has nothing to do with the biblical idea of a pastor. What was a pastor in Paul's day making decisions on? Where their building would be? I mean, all of those are irrelevant questions. There's so many things that have been glommed onto the office. And what happens is we connect the dots too quickly. And so we go, okay, pastors know I'm a pastor, so none of these things. But the concern in the Bible has to do with relationship not with decision-making. And this is actually very common for good complementarians to recognize. So Kostenberger, who is one of the most prolific writers from this perspective that says men and women are equal, equal in dignity, but differing in role, says women need to be involved in the decisions the church makes, especially the ones that involve them. That's a common-sense decision to him because he's done a good job answering what is a pastor. Okay. When we answer the questions, what is society and all these things, we can get those answers wrong, and that leads to bad answers on these things, and that needs to be recognized. Um, uh, and so how do we open our hands in these ideas that are socially constructed versus biblical? Okay. Um, it takes hard work. We have to ask, answer corresponding questions like, what is a pastor? Or like, what is a husband? Or, um, or uh, what is subjection and what is it not? Or submission and what is it not? Um, and that is, is super important and it's easy to get wrong because the way that we think, we fill in more gaps than we speak. That's just the way communication works, okay? I'll give you an example. Because these things have remained untested, we are prone to abuse out of ignorance, I believe, like I said, that pastors should be men. I believe that's what the Bible teaches. And so when we started this church, um, I associate the pastoral office with preaching on Sunday. I actually think there's all sorts of other places where women can teach, and even over men. I know there's diverse opinions on that. I, we can have that discussion, but another time. But that, to me, was the connection. So what happened early in our church when I was the sole pastor here is pretty regularly I would have men who were not pastors of this church, were not ordained, fulfill, fill in in the pulpit for me. Partially because I was hoping to train them up towards that role. But I would never let a woman do the same thing. But the difference between them uh, was only gender and not ordination. Do you see what I'm saying there? And it was completely invisible to me, my inconsistency there, that I would have said, Women can't teach because this is for pastors, and then I let pastors not teach because they were men. Okay? That was unjust. It was totally sexist. It didn't even live up to my own values, and the primary reason I didn't consider it is because I didn't consider it. Okay? And that's the nature of where we start on these things, and so we need to be open to questions. The issue for me is not should we ask good questions. Semper reformata, always reforming. 
But when we ask those questions, where do we go for the answers? Okay. And so as I've said before, even with this series, this is not the final word on these things, but we do believe the beginning word has to start with the scriptures. I heard you say that being a life giver as a woman is not just about having kids, that it's broader than giving birth and raising children. What else does it mean then if I'm not a mother and I'm still made in the image of God? Moreover, how should someone who doesn't fit into the relational aspect of husband or wife or the social aspect, mother or father, of gender, think about these things? I think for all of these things, they are the most pronounced in, in gendered roles. And so masculinity is, uh, apart from your sonship, apart from your fatherhood, apart from your husband aspect, but those are the most explicit forms. And the reason they're the most explicit is because they're connected to another individual person. Okay. If you are a father, you are a father of a particular child. If you are a husband, you are a husband of a particular person. And so the nature of that relationship um, makes these things more clear. But if my understanding that I pointed to for the church is right, um, then maturity for the Christian man is fatherly, that the role that they play in other people's lives is this way, okay? So let me give a slightly different one. We didn't really talk about this aspect today, but there does seem to be this, once again, consistent cross-cultural pattern of protecting women, okay? I know the abuse is there, I know those things are there, but when you saw the video of the Vegas shooting, or when you go back to the Aurora shooting, we get consistent stories of men who have laid down both on wives and women they're related to, and sometimes strange women, and taken the bullets on their behalf. To me, that's tied to the aspect of masculinity. It's not something we talked about. It's something significant. Now, does a woman do that for her children? We have just as many stories, okay? But there does seem to be this orientation to that. This is what I'm saying that I think if you're in a position of danger as a man, you have a responsibility to the people around you of protection. I would say that's a start of how I see this with Life Giver. That the uniquely feminine way you relate to other people is related to this idea of nourishment, of cultivating relationship, of these types of things. I wish I could give you a 10-piece checklist for what this looks like. I don't think that would be helpful. You're not going to be able to remove this from who you are your unique giftings, the culture that you're operating in, the people that you're trying to minister to. There's so many other factors. But that's what I'm trying to say, is, is that if I understand what the Bible is saying about femininity uh, in general, and when I look at the studies that have been done of the differences between men and women, there's an orientation here that's best described in this idea of, of life. Okay? Um, and, and let me make a clarification for men as well. When we talk about formation and creation, it makes it sound like I'm just saying men make stuff. Men leave the house and they build something, right? Even with people, the way men are called to relate to other men and women is formational. That's what we saw in the father me metaphor, right? There's a cultivation of children, just like there's a nourishment of children, um, but there's a uniquely masculine aspect to that. Um, so, that's what I'm thinking. Um, this is a question that I'm really, really glad was asked. So this is the last one from this morning. 
Still processing, but had two thoughts on the sermon. On androgyny, this was rushed through, but this point didn't feel sufficiently disconnected from society. Like the reason women move towards presenting as a male is because that's where the power is, as society is concurrently structured. These are men. There are men presenting more as female, Jaden Smith, for example, but that's viewed as weaker and more radical because of how we're socialized. Um, Absolutely, and we aren't going to get away from the social aspect of this. In fact, let me give a different, different illustration here just to make this clear. Um, think of gender expression. What it looks like to dress like or act like a man or a woman is a part of this paradigm, but that one is not cross-culturally consistent. Okay, period. Gender expression, what men look like or act like, and what women look like or act like is clearly culturally bound. Does that mean it's not significant, and because it's relative, then it's irrelevant? And so it doesn't really matter how we dress. As Christians, we have to say no. And here's the reason. Because culture is communication. And when somebody puts on a dress in America or puts on lipstick, they're actually trying to say something. Okay? And what's important is not how they say it. That can be diverse. But what they're saying is important because there are real realities. There is real truth. And so we have to recognize that. That's why when Paul talks about head coverings in 1 Corinthians, he gives a culturally bound illustration of this principle. He says, because these are things are true and this is what it looks like in your culture, it should look this way. Okay? But even in the passage itself in 1 Corinthians 11, he recognizes that it's unique to the context. The principles are transcultural, the manifestation is cultural, and because of that combination, in the same way, recognizing that there are structural and societal aspects to how gender plays out doesn't remove the reality of gender. It does recognize the fact that there are going to be places where Christians should confront false views. And that's where this question, I think, really points to, and I would absolutely agree Um, I do think as Christians we have to watch out for that word power because our distinct culture-shifting example is Jesus and that's a manifestation of weakness and not of strength and clearly we can't get away from a Christian ethic that involves that sensibility of surrender and sacrifice and looking weak even though what we accomplish is profound. The only way to life as Christians is through death and that's not just for women, it's also for men. That's why in Ephesians, yes, Paul tells the wife to submit to her husband, but he also tells the husband to lay his life down for the wife. The sacrifice is engendered, it's different, but if you leave either one out, you don't manifest the image. Okay? Christ is the head of the church as, as the husband is the head of her, his wife, but that headship is manifested in self-sacrifice. Okay? I actually would say for positions of power, nothing is more challenging than the gospel. Nothing will be, do more to overturn the abuses of those powers than the profound reality of what God himself did in taking on weak human flesh and allowing himself to be crucified. Second, and this is the one that I really wanted to address. Also, I realize the sermon approached this from what is maybe a biblical ideal, but I imagine a trans or intersect person in the room would have felt extraordinarily excluded from the conversation, especially with the way it felt like the sermon conflated gender and biology. For many people, they align, but for, people they, for some, they don't. The sermon didn't acknowledge trans and intersex people's existence at all. That's true. Um, and part of the reason is because, um, because I 
we just talked about so much. I didn't know how to touch on those things as well. If you've been with us the whole time, these things have been touched on a little bit, okay? Um, but I do want to recognize this thing, and before we do, we should lay out some terms, okay? When we talk about transgender and intersex, we're talking about two different things, and so the answer is two different things. With someone who is intersex, um, I'm not positive I can. Let me see. Oh, look, I can. There we go. Um, okay, so, so let's deal with intersex first. Okay. When we talk about biological sex, we're not just talking about genitalia. We're also talking about gonads, which are your internal sex organs, whether they're the testes on a man or the ovaries on a woman. We're also talking about chromosomes, right? At the genetic level, in every cell, there's a chromosomal, um, chromosomal pattern, and for men, there's an X and a Y, and for women, there's two Xs, okay? And so when we talk about biological sex, we're talking about all of those things. In intersex, those things don't correspond, okay? At one of those levels, or many of them, there's... Uh, there's an incongruence, okay? And so we're talking about a, uh, a physical sex that is complicated, okay? Now, when we talk about transgender, and usually that's a pretty broad category. That would include somebody who um, cross-dresses for entertainment. It would include somebody who cross-dresses for sexual arousal. But usually what we're actually talking about is somebody dealing with gender dysphoria, which means they have an internal sense that their body is not the right sex for the gender they know themselves to be, okay? What's different in the two is in a transgender reality, gonads, chromosomes, genitalia all line up with a single sex, but their internal sense of identity does not, okay? Um, we have to separate those things before we can deal with them. So with intersex, I think he's absolutely right to, to represent this as being a, um, uh, a hard topic. If, if it's hard to determine if they're biologically male or female, and there's a lot of different um, conditions involved in intersex, it's once again a broad category, um, then what does it look like for them to be image bearers of God? Okay. I think that's a, a very important question. I think we do find some hope in the gospel message for people in this condition because of the way that Jesus talks about eunuchs. Okay, and specifically, when he talks about eunuchs, he gives us three categories. Those who are, who are born eunuchs, those who are made eunuchs by men, which generally means oppression, and those who become eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom. So the last category, he's talking about people who are single and celibate for the sake of the kingdom. But in the other two, he recognizes this. And as I said, Isaiah also recognizes this reality. In Isaiah chapter 60, I even looked it up this time. Give me just a second. See if I left my Bible open. Of course I didn't. Oh, yes I did. Hold on. Um, here's the point. In Isaiah 56, verse 3, Isaiah writing says this. He's talking once again about the coming kingdom, what God's going to do in Jesus. Do not let the son of the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord speaking, saying, the Lord has utterly separated me from his people, nor let the eunuch say, here I am, a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuch who keeps my Sabbaths and chooses what pleases me and holds fast my covenant. Even to them I will give in my house and within my walls a place and a name better than that of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Okay. 
In the Old Testament law, eunuchs weren't allowed in the tabernacle. And I, God says, but what, what I'm going to do, what's coming, there's going to be a place for those who don't fit the paradigm. Okay? Um, and that includes people uh, who are dealing with intersex. Okay? Um, now, with, with, with the reality of transgender, first thing we need to recognize is that gender dysphoria is a real thing. People are actually experiencing psychological distress because their sense of identity doesn't align with their bodies. Nobody's challenging that. Okay? We have to recognize that reality. The, the concern that Christians would make about this reality is twofold. One, that because of the psychosomatic unity that the Bible presents, that our body is not just a vessel and the real me is hidden somewhere inside, but that I am my body, um, that that is something that, that biologically your body gets a vote in who God made you. Okay? Second, second, the problem is in one of perception. Okay? Their bodies are totally healthy and functioning. The problem that they have, the psychological distress they feel is just that. It's psychological. And so my concerns are that sometimes the way we think of these things um, is too different from take for some... For example, somebody who deals with anorexia nervosa. Okay? Their sense of image says, I'm too fat. Their body does not align with that image. Okay? And so treatment from a Christian perspective doesn't just assume that the body is malleable or even that that's the best way to go about it, even though the condition is real. Okay? And so f- what I'm saying is for, for the transgender person, um, sex and gender might be separate realities, but the sex is significant, okay? And, and that what treatment should look like for that, um, that uh, a transsexual transition surgery is problematic from a Christian worldview um, for, for those reasons. That doesn't deny for either of these categories of people the difficulty of life, the need for identity and support and these things. Um, but it's, it's, we have to watch out for this assumption that just says uh, because there's exceptions, there is no rule. In two weeks, we're going to talk further about this. What I want to do next week is talk about husband and wife, and what I want to do the following week um, is ask the question, is the gospel good news for people who, who, whose fallen reality will never manifest in these ways that we've talked about? For the single, for the intersex, for the transgender, for the infertile. Is the gospel good news for people who aren't cisgendered, heterosexual, married, and pregnant? And I think we have to ask that question, and we will. Okay, where's my mouse? All right, let's see what else we got here. How can we find out what female and male definitions are biblically if there isn't much said on the topic in the Bible? Um, I think um, I think the main reason why the Bible doesn't say much on these things is because we've been looking in the wrong ways. Okay? Uh, in one sense, it's absolutely right. The Bible doesn't give a list of appropriate career choices for men and women. Nor does it make a list of uh, masculine or feminine hobbies uh, or attributes. 
Uh, but it does say quite a lot about these relationships, about tradition, or not just traditionally, but essentially male and female vocations. Um, but we do have to change the way we look because even when we talk about fatherhood, we want the task list. But as Stephen Clark points out, as a father ages and a son ages, the task list changes. To the degree that is a man still a father if he's being cared for by his adult son while he's elderly? The answer is clearly yes, but the way we generally talk about fatherhood as a responsibility doesn't recognize that the significance there is on the role and the job description is going to change over time, but the role does not. Okay? And so, so I actually think there, there is quite a bit here um, when we start to ask those questions. The Bible says a lot about the relationship between husband and wife. It says a lot about um, the responsibilities and the relationship between parents and children. Um, and, and so, yes, it never uses the words masculine or feminine, but it's a story filled with men and women. Um, and uh, and I'll, I'll give you just one other thing that's stuck in my brain. It seems significant to me that there are occasions in the New Testament where the audience is divided up and it says men do these things, women do these things. And I'm not talking about responsibilities in the home or in the church. I'm talking about particular calls to character. And what I'm assuming is that gender actually changes the way we associate with sin. Not that men aren't sin or women, women don't sin, but that we sin differently. That we have different proneness to different temptations and different idolatries. And even if we do the same thing, we do it for different reasons and in different ways. I haven't t- had time to explore that, and I've been, my mind has been blown that nobody has, as far as I can find. It's not where we talk about these things. We talk about yeses and nos. Um, and what I'm saying is I'm advocating for a new way. To be clear, you are connecting the archetype of masculinity or fatherhood to forming and the archetype of femininity or motherhood to filling. Yet, for example, this does not mean fathers don't participate in filling and mothers don't participate in forming. Um, yes, I, I think that's right. Um, for example, the, when Paul refers to the fatherliness of his nature, he talks specifically about the fact that he's exhorted and encouraged them. Um, exhortation and encouragement are not engendered realities. Um, I would say that in the Bible, and I think this is hard to disprove, the responsibility, uh, the buck stops with the father for training up his children. But the Bible talks about both mothers and fathers teaching. It talks about children owing obedience to both mothers and fathers, to listening, read the book of Proverbs, to both mothers and fathers, okay? Um, and so, so, yes, I think that's right. But once again, I think the best place we can start on this is not what am I supposed to be doing to prove that I'm a man, but how am I designed to be? And what does it look like to lean into that, Okay. What I'm wondering is if it's possible for many of us to have untapped strengths, okay? That's, that's what's more important to me right now. Okay. This is a three-part, and oftentimes when I do this, it gets the order wrong. Hey, good. Even pre-fall, it's not good that man should be alone. Well, why? What does that have to say about the need for romantic companionship and the need... Uh, needs often seen loneliness. Um, for the most part, I just want to refer to the sermons we've already had. I'm assuming that this question asker wasn't along for the ride because we actually talked about this a lot. When we read in Genesis, it's not good that man is alone. We should hear three things. This is what we've seen in sexuality. First, 
It's not good that man doesn't have woman, okay? That he alone isn't enough to reflect the image of God and also to flourish, that there's a correspondedness to male and female that is needed for community to thrive. Second, it's not good for man to be alone. He's single and needs a wife, okay? And then third, it's not good that man to be alone. He's isolated and needs community. Embodied sexuality, relational sexuality, social sexuality. And so it really means all of those things. Um, When it asks, because it mentions here that this is before the fall, and I think it's important that we recognize this. It's not because of sin that we're lonely. It's because of design. Okay? We need other people. And as I said last week, and I'll continue to repeat, the call even to the life of singleness is not a call to aloneness. Period. Okay? And so, so we have an inherent desire for other people. It manifests in different ways. We want friends. We want we want a lover or a spouse. Uh, we long for family and parents. Just ask anyone who's been adopted. There's still these aspects of who we are. Um, and that's by design because it's not good that we should be alone. Okay. Let me see if I've missed any. That is all the questions I have, so I want to give one last minute to see if there's any last-minute questions. Um, We will definitely close this at 9.30, so I've got six minutes. If you want to type in a quick question, I promise I'm not looking at your hands right now. You can still ask as anonymous of a question as you like. Um. Okay, let me finish, um, finish by just pointing out one more thing. We're only spending two weeks on the topic of gender, so I don't expect anybody to have a fully orbed idea of these things when we finish. But when we talk about husband and wife next week, this is metaphorically how I think of it. What we've laid is just a single line, okay? When we lay another line, it's going to be in a different direction, and suddenly the shape of things is going to be clearer because we're moving from the one-dimensional to the two-dimensional. And so you're still only going to have two sides, but it's going to give you a much better idea of the contours of this thing. As we've seen week to week, none of this stuff really stands alone as, as sufficient. It all is interconnected, and we need kind of the whole of all of it um, to understand these things. Um, but I promise you that, that next week will help. So... Thank you again for coming out tonight. Um, Thank you for your thoughtful questions. Um, Let me pray for us and I'll let you go. God, as we go our way tonight, um, I just ask that we would uh, would be thoughtful with these things. Um, I know that some of the things I've said are uh, probably muddled up in poor communication or even wrong opinions. And I I just pray that you would lead us collectively to a better understanding of these things because I think at the very least we've learned tonight that male and female was created for our good and that there are things as we explore these things uh, that will teach us about who you are and so it's worth pursuing we pray this in your name amen